All right, man. We are back and we are at it again. Here we go. What is up with what is up with you these days? We well, we're in the thick of Lent these days, huh? That's right. We are, according to your latest post on Twitter, we are on the first Friday of Lent. Which, I said that. <laughs> yeah, you did. You did say that, and I'm not sure you consulted a calendar before you tweeted that because <laughs> <laughs> this is the second Friday of Lent. <laughs> yeah. So welcome the first, to the. I second... meant to say the first week. The first Friday of the first week of Lent. <laughs> okay, so this this is the second first Friday of Lent. <laughs> Maybe I should go back and delete that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the second first Friday of Lent. Uh, yeah, we're in the thick of it all. We're in the first week of Lent. And honestly, you know, as we are approaching this episode, I I don't really have a lot to talk about, but that has never stopped us from talking about a lot. So... Yeah. I just thought we could take this whole episode to just kind of catch up and just kind of treat it as a catch up, catch all mm. kind of mm. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that. Catch up and catch all. Uh, how do you, what do you think about that? I like it. Good. So uh, let's just jump right in. I have uh, just a question about Lent. Uh, we were talking about it. You know, we we talked a little bit about last week about what we're going to give up. Um, I'm curious. You know, how are your things going? I know you have some social media stuff you've been doing that uh, might be interesting to talk about. You. You actually didn't even tell me about one of them until you started posting. So I'm curious about how all that's going. How's your Lent doing? I think I'm going to delete that tweet right now. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You should just write a response to your own tweet saying, "I'll do it. La- I'll do it later. I'll I'll, com- I'll comment on it. Acknowledge my fault. Mea culpa." Ah, see, that's a very Lenten practice. That's right. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a funny story. And by funny, I mean, I just decided to do it kind of last minute. I was, it was Ash Wednesday mm-hmm. last week before the first Friday of Lent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, so oh, here's some context. A couple of weeks before that, I was watching some drawing U- YouTube videos, which I am want to do. And I came across this one where somebody had, there was like a hundred, head challenge so draw 10 heads per day for 10 days what and they're not like full-on portraits they're little thumbnails little sketches just the the idea was to get some practice in you know some good repetition some good drills okay and i was super excited and i went outside and and did my first it takes about an hour to do that to do a head no to do all 10 oh okay wow are you serious yeah uh, well, I put the timer on for like five minutes per head. Um, Jeez, it would take me ten days to do <laughs> a bad one. <laughs> yeah, to do one badly. Well, fast forward a little bit after my super excited start to uh, start to this new challenge, and I did day two about four days later. Uh, <laughs> turns out that's a lot, and I was not yeah. good at being disciplined <laughs> enough to do it. Mm-hmm. So I was mm-hmm. thinking about that, and I don't know what it was that spurred my imagination to, on this Ash Wednesday last week, to start doing these 40, so the plan is 40 days of Lent, one skull per per day. So 40 days, 40 skulls. Uh-huh. And how's that going? Pretty good. You know, it's it's harder than I thought. It's much easier than the 10, trying to sit down and do the 10 heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, much easier than that, you know, but I'm still finding that I'm, cause I do it in the evening. So I actually post, I'm posting 
yesterday's skull for today or something like that. Okay. Anyway, um, I'm kind of staying up a little late. I, need, I think I need to switch up how I'm doing that. So explain to me why you're doing skulls. Like what was the, what was the rationale here? Well, I don't know. Remember you are dust into dust you shall return. Kind of a memento mori thing. Okay. It's pretty lent, pretty metal. Uh, <laughs> I'm all for that. Mm. Uh, so are you experiencing it as a reflective prayerful thing or is it just kind of a like a, a challenge that you're doing to yourself? So at first it was kind of a challenge, a discipline thing. Like this is just something that I need to do to sit down and do every day. Mm-hmm. But then I was maybe, oh, when did this hit me? Oh, I think it was Sunday, last Sunday. I posted my complete, like the first four, whatever, on the Instagram. Um, and I realized that I have been praying with this verse from the book of Ezekiel for a, quite a while now, a couple of months. Uh, so the famous vision of the dry bones. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The very end, there's this this really cool prophecy uh, where Ezekiel says, let me call it up here so I can get it right. Something to the effect of, O breath of God, breathe on these slain that they may live. Hmm. Oh, here it is. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. Hmm. Uh, and so I'd been praying with this for a while even thinking about doing another art project based on that. So these two things were separate until this Sunday. And I was like, you know what? That's Lent. We're remembering our death. We were remembering our humanness, but not so that we may face destruction and emptiness and loneliness, but so that the breath of God may come upon us and that we may live and that Mm. we slain may live. Wow. So it's really like developed just in the week that I've been doing this into much, much more than I initially thought that it would be. Nice. Why don't you, I mean, it seems, I think that's really cool, but what if you, you know, extended it beyond just skulls? Wouldn't it be easier to just like, you know, draw a bone every <laughs> once in a while? Like, <laughs> <Just> draw a bone. <laughs> you know, if you have, <laughs> and maybe you could make a skeleton after a long time or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, today you draw a rib. <laughs> a rib. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it'll be a little easier. Tomorrow yeah. you draw a little kneecap. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a fingertip. <laughs> mm. That's cool, man. That's kind of a cool way for you to use your art to help you reflect yeah. more deeply on the meaning of Lent. I like that. Yeah. That's cool. How is everything else going for Lent? You uh, you said you're going to try and fast more st- stringently. <laughs> yeah. So this is kind of weird to say. Uh, I just don't really find fasting to be all that difficult, like in general. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand that, but... Like, please, please, just please elaborate on a random day. Like, I'll forget to eat a meal. Like, oh, oh I fasted today. <laughs> like, how I, is that? I fast by mistake, apparently. <laughs> I I legitimately do not know if I have ever missed a meal. Really? Yeah. Well, I unless it was like an intentional, I am not eating because I'm fasting today. I don't <laughs> think I've ever like consciously said or like woke up in the afternoon and said like, oh my god, I haven't eaten today. <laughs> yeah, I do that all the time. <laughs> uh, and so I started thinking like, you know, 
it's cool that I guess it's cool that I can just do that, you know, the Friday, the Friday fast and Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Um, but I, I got to thinking, like, I don't actually know if I know what it's like to feel hunger. Hmm. Even because on those, yeah, even on, on the days, days when, I, when I miss, you know, yeah. oh yeah, okay, I did that. I guess I'll eat. <laughs> uh, so I thought it might be a good idea to try to push that a little bit into into becoming a little bit uncomfortable. Hmm. So pulling some twenty four hour water slash coffee fasts. Oh God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> sounds so awful. <laughs> yeah, I guess my whole thing with fasting is that I I find first of all I don't find it at all enjoyable. Um, and maybe that's the point. I'm not sure. Uh, but I also really don't find it helpful in like focusing my, my spiritual life or like focusing on God. I, on Ash Wednesday and on Good Friday, I do it and I don't enjoy it, but I do it because of discipline of the church. Uh, I just don't really find it helpful, like in my spiritual life at all. I don't know. I just, I find that like intentionally fasting from particular things is helpful. Like the things that I did give up from Lent for Lent, but I don't know, just giving up food. I've never felt like really puts me in a good place. It kind of makes me really cranky. Yeah. You know, I have been finding it. I mean, anytime you you have a drastic dietary shift, your, your body's going to go through some weird changes and kind of getting used to this new thing, this new routine. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, but that being said, you know, I actually have been finding that oddly enough, things are a little bit more clear. Like I find my mind a little bit more focused when I'm, when I've been fasting. Hmm. I don't really know how to explain it. There might be science there, or I might just be making it up, (laughs) but those are interchangeable for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but it's yeah I I've really like reading I find to be a little bit easier on those on those fast days. What? <laughs> that's insane. Okay, yeah. well that's I don't know for you. I can't explain it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy for you. That's yeah. great. Uh, <laughs> what uh, else did you do then? Other, other than, than that, that, so I don't know if I should say this publicly. This is kind of antithetical, apparently, to our Jesuit life. So hopefully I'm not getting anybody in trouble here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a couple of us have decided to pray morning prayer in common. Hmm. <laughs> in common. Yeah. Right? That's, uh, that's oh, the yeah. key thing. Right, right, right. Well, no, how's, we, we can't pray in common, so we shouldn't pray at all. That's how's what, that going? That's what Ignatius said, right? Mm. Awesome. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, nice. It's, yeah, it's, uh, we do it at 730 in the morning. Which means I now have a reason to get up at seven thirty, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, because one of the other things that I noticed is that, like, unfortunately, prayer or having dedicated time for drawing or painting or whatever is not a good enough reason for for my body to wake up early. Hmm. But like appointments with other people tends to do the trick. Yeah. Like when you were teaching at the high school, you would never miss a meeting right. in the morning. No. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When you've got like a job and it's your job to wake up in the morning, then you do it. Mm-hmm. But if I'm just lounging around like, oh, yeah, no, I should pray in the mornings. 
that's never going to happen. <laughs> so have have you not gotten to a point in your life where you like pray at the same time every day? No, no. Really? Yeah, I mean, it tends, it does tend to happen in the mornings when I don't have class. Um, but it's not, it's not the same time every day. Wow. Yeah, I find that if it's not the same time every day, then it's not going to happen at all. Yeah. Like I, maybe people have criticized me for this a little bit too, is that I've become very much a creature of habit and routine. And it's like, if I don't keep my routine in the morning, then it's very, it's very likely that I won't pray that day. Mm. Yeah, routines are important. And I think this is the season where we really rediscover that in our lives. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah, totally. You know, Lent is all about and again, we've talked about this before. It's not about fasting for the sake of fasting or, you know, doing whatever. It's about recognizing what's actually important in our lives. Mm -hmm. And these routines are, in fact, very important for us to maintain a healthy spiritual and physical life. So now that you're waking up to pray lauds in the morning, why don't you wake up at, for that and then stay in the chapel afterwards for your, like, morning prayer? Yeah, do well. You do, do you do something like that? So we usually have mass right afterwards at, at eight o'clock. So I'm oh, usually cool. running off to mass after that. Um, so yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about morning routines. So like for me, a perfect day is waking up at five in the morning Ugh. and eating breakfast right away and then praying right away and then showering right away and then getting started with work right away by like seven o'clock five five morning what is this word i don't understand <laughs> yeah five uh <laughs> five what? in the morning yeah what? so that then by seven o'clock i have I no am, idea what you're saying to me right now by seven by <laughs> the time you're getting out of bed i've already worked for about an hour well you're like five hours ahead of me anyways so <laughs> i'm probably just going to bed by the time you're waking up <laughs> that's actually kind of true because <laughs> I wake up at five o'clock on the East Coast and that's two o'clock where you're at. No, I don't stay up that late. Not anymore. I don't think so. I used to. Very good. Well, it sounds like you're doing well this Lent. Have you, so you've been keeping to your commitments. That's yeah. great. Yeah. You know, and I'm so, and I should say, I'm not super strict about my fasting. Like today, one of the local parishes that Jesuits help run is hosting a fish fish fry. So I'm mm -hmm. going to go and support the community and have some fried fish. So but was your uh, is your strict fasting like every Friday no food? Is that what you said? Yeah, Wednesday and Friday. Every Wednesday and Friday no no food except water and coffee? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Just I still cannot I cannot comprehend okay. this. So, you know, I'll I'll make I'll make exceptions if if, you know, if the need arises. So I'm not, I'm not being super strict about it. And that's, I mean, I'm not going to eat a big steak on a Friday, but well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will, good, make, I will make good. exceptions. How about you? What have you been doing? Well, my Lent has been going good. I, um, I told you last week, I decided to give up YouTube and Reddit and that's been super clutch. Um, getting rid of that has been a huge godsend and I actually don't miss it really at all. I mean, like there's, which maybe is evidence to how little value I may have been finding in those places. Yeah. Um, just a lot of distraction, perhaps. Um, I don't really miss it, you know? I don't really find myself longing for it. And I've replaced it with a book, and so I've been reading Pope Benedict's Jesus of Nazareth, which has been really awesome, and I'm working my way through it. I just finished the uh, 
the section on the eschatological discourse. Mm. So I'm all the way at the washing of the feet now, which has been really fun. Um, nice. Yeah, I really like his writing, and I've, this is a book I've been meaning to read for a long time. Yeah. Um, so that's been really good. Also, I decided to add uh, the examination of my day with more intention. So I I downloaded this sort of journal app that allows me to mm. keep track of everything that I do every day, yeah. and that's been awesome Crazy to be able deal. to sit. It's something. It's not that, but it's something <laughs> like that. Um, and what's been cool is that now when I sit to actually pray my exam, and I have a list of things that I did that day that. So I don't have to depend on my memory for uh-huh. one. And also I don't have to depend on like letting my mind, like my mind wanders if I give it a chance to just be quiet in the middle of the day. Right. So being anchored to a list of things that have actually happened uh, is really helpful. Um, so that's been good. So it's been helping facilitate my exam a little bit. Um, yeah. I think overall it's been a good length so far. I, I'm not doing anything food wise, giving up anything like that, but. I find that YouTube and Reddit has been a pretty good thing to let go of. Um, the other thing that I I discovered, I guess, in this past week is that there there's an aspect of almsgiving that I didn't really develop when I started Lent. And I never really do almsgiving really well, like how to do something charitable. Um, so I haven't really anchored anything down there. One thing that came to my mind the other day is that there are some people at the school that I haven't really made much of an effort to get to know, some new mm. students. And I thought this would be a really good opportunity to reach out to them more and to like hmm. befriend them and, yeah. you know, even just invite them out to a cup of coffee would be kind of like, it's not an act of charity in the sense of they're in need, but you know, it's a gesture of kindness. Yeah. We yeah I like that. That. We that'd be kind of cool. Are you doing anything charitable for Lent? So we, so no short answer, <laughs> <laughs> but long answer is yes, because with my RCIA group, every every Lent we do one of the um, Friday stations and prepare the soup dinner for the parish. Cool. So we're there to to yeah spend the day cooking and praying and then gathering as a community for a simple meal. Nice, uh, nice. Yeah, and it's an outreach thing. Yeah, that is cool. And you're doing it as a community, which is good. And it's right. not just right. you by yourself. Right. It's just not it's not just my thing that I like because mm-hmm. I like to do my things. Right, 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 right. Lent is Very cool. the community. Indeed. So how else is life? How else are things? How's school? How's how are you? You know, David uh-huh. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna be honest. It's really difficult to keep my head in the game at this point. Oh really? With school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is it because of the time of the semester or just after being a student for this long? All, everything. You know, this is, we've been in formation for like 10 years, David. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. It's a yes. long time. Yeah. And it's the final semester. It's coming up on the second half of the final semester. I'm already thinking about, I need to start buying my plane tickets. I need to start packing not maybe not packing footnote that that's coming up later um but just there's so much going on that school is one of the last things that i, that I want to think about mm. <laughs> which think, is terrible you, because i do want to finish well and finish strong yeah do you think that this is it for you school-wise uh you know i don't know for now at least i don't think i'll immediately jump back into a degree degree program 
So once uh, you finish your MDiv, you're probably going to be done for a couple of years? Yeah. I may do like an MFA later. I don't think that I have have the energy or the desire for a PhD. It'd be cool. And that's about <laughs> and that's about where I am with most of these degrees. And that's mm-hmm. not a very good reason to get a degree. No, no. <laughs> so I think I think once you get into the apostolate again, you're probably not going to miss the studies. Yeah, yeah. I think like there's there's a distinction between like wanting to be learned and and wanting to be educated and wanting to be a student. Right. Like, there's right. I think all of us want to be educated and want to be yeah. you know and I'm gonna smart continue people. reading and and learning and all of that like that that doesn't stop. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, but being in a degree program, it has to be something particular. Like yeah. there has to be, you know, an invitation that you feel from God to continue studying a certain right, way. Right. Um, like I feel a little bit of the burnout right now, like especially when I start zooming out and saying like in the 32 years of my life, you know, how much of 26 of that or whatever has been in school. Um, and thinking about that, I get a little bit anxious about getting out of the school system <laughs> and getting back into the real world. Yeah. Um, or even just belonging to the real world for the first time, uh, where there is no school on the horizon. Because yeah. even when we were teachers in high in the high school, we knew well, first off we were in a school schedule, and secondly, we knew that we were going to be back in school right, pretty soon. Right, right. But in spite of all that, I do feel like in my case, I don't feel the anxiety or the pressure to like finish this thing because I like I have a desire to continue studying next year. You know, so I'll probably carry that for a couple more years. Right. So. Right. Who knows how long I'll be in school? <laughs> yeah, not for me. Uh, no, I'm getting really excited about uh, next year and the possibilities that are in front of me. Nice. Uh, I, I've noticed that I that I tend to like. Com- I don't know if this is like a compartmentalization, but I tend to think of things like so. I'm in this packing mode right now, which is way too early. Because I've started thinking about plane tickets, because I've gotten into the um, this mindset of transition, and so I started taking books off of my shelf <laughs> to like mm. sort them out, and so now my my room is destroyed. There are books everywhere, and this is not a healthy. That's not a healthy way for me to live with books just yeah. scattered around. But you're also not moving yet, right? It's exactly, not, it's like... way too early for this. Like, why I don't know why this? I did that. Because that's just what you do. You buy your plane tickets and you start packing. <laughs> so have you bought your plane tickets to, no, to leave Berkeley No, but I've yet? been thinking about it. Oh my gosh, this is insane. <laughs> yes, it's ridiculous. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put everything back. <laughs> <laughs> put your, yeah, put your books back. <laughs> that's a that's a good idea. Yeah. Fortunately, our comprehensive exams are next month, so I've got pretty much the entire, almost the entire month of May to to do transition stuff to mm-hmm. finish up mm-hmm. papers here and there. But the big, the big thing will be over. So I'll have a lot, a lot so more you, time. You guys do your comps before the end of the semester. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. We do it at the end. Honestly, I wish it was even like the semester before or the year before. Hmm. Like the last thing we do. One of the last things we do is this big, this big thing while everybody's in transition mode, the lay students are looking for jobs. Like it's just a pressure cooker mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for stress. Yeah, I think is somewhat unnecessary. Yeah, I agree. Where do most of those lay students that graduate from JST? Where do the, most of them apply to? Like, what do they end up doing? I think a lot apply to schools and parishes. Um, 
to do uh yeah to work in like i think they look for pastoral um opportunities mm -hmm. cuz i often wonder like what what does an mdiv like what doors are open to you with an mdiv <laughs> yeah that's um, a good question <laughs> and it's Honestly, it's just hard for yeah, it's, I think it's hard for us to distinguish what doors are open to us as Jesuits and what doors are open to us as people with MDivs. Yeah. And like, I'm not exactly sure. Um, well, I the guess MDiv like itself is a very recent thing for the church. Hmm. Like it yeah, used to be the STB and the STL or the ecclesiastical degrees. So I think most people that I know that are lay students that get MDivs, they end up working as chaplains or like with, like in a school or a hospital or the military. Or I guess you can also apply it to being a teacher, a theology teacher or something. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we worked with a couple of people in Dallas that were JST grads with an MDiv. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hmm. I guess in our case, it's just one of the interesting things about the way that we study our theology is that it seems like for us, the MDiv is a requirement <laughs> for, but for the lay students, it's like the degree that they're seeking. Right. Well, I mean, it is. The canon law requires doesn't require that we get the MDiv. It requires X amount of theological study, mm -hmm. and they have determined that that equals about an MDiv plus mm -hmm. a little plus some change. Right, right. So that's what we end up doing. Right. So the degree is secondary. Our our mission, our primary focus, is to have that level of theological training. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking about that for a second, I wonder. Have you felt, so we both taught theology, have you felt, how have you experienced your growth and understanding and appreciation of theology having, <laughs> like, in the last couple of years, do you feel like you have changed much uh -huh. by way of, like, what you, how you understand theology <laughs> mm -hmm. or not? Or do you think that, like, no, everything that I believe now or understand now hasn't really been deepened or hasn't really been changed? <laughs> wow, that's, uh, this could get me in trouble. <laughs> well, there's your answer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, it, it's not, it's not that bleak. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that. Like, if I were to go back and teach freshman scripture, I would probably teach it the same way that I did when I was in Regency. Huh. You know, I have. I would certainly feel more comfortable. So I'm taking this prophets class right now, which is pretty fun. Um, and thinking back to when we would get to the prophets sections in my scripture classes. Like I would gloss over those because I wasn't too comfortable with, with doing that. And yeah. it, it is kind of a side note when you're looking at, so I taught kind of an overall narrative of salvation history. Yeah. In my um, book, that's the only way to teach the old Testament. Yeah. And so it, it does, especially to kids, it forces you to kind of jump back and go. And so it's, this is weird shift time shift that happens when you, when you, teach the prophets uh, that I'm wasn't super comfortable with that. I would probably be a little bit, well, no, I, I would be able to do it now confidently. So, okay. Help. I've yeah, been, I've been, my understandings have developed. They haven't necessarily changed. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. How, how, okay. How, really quick as a side note, I've always struggled with this in the old Testament. Okay. The, is it true that the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles and the books of the prophets are all in the same time period? Uh, roughly. So I know that maybe like, well, it's just odd because like 
the books of the prophets are so much later in the Old Testament in terms of like where they're located. Yeah. That I often think that they are later writings or like they tell a story of a later time. But when I took my prophets class, it was just striking me all the time that like, wait a minute. When Isaiah begins his book, you know, he says in the time of King, whatever. King Uzziah. Yeah. So it's like, okay, hold on a second. So if I read the entirety of the books of Kings and Chronicles and prophets, they're all telling a simultaneous story. Yeah. Yeah. And that's That's interesting. That's part of why it's difficult to teach the narrative because you have to, each time you, it's kind of like reading the Lord of the Rings. Each time you start a new chapter, you have to go back to the beginning. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, not a chapter, but each book kind of goes back to the beginning and tells the story from a different perspective. Oh, I see. Oh yeah. That's a good point. Uh, Actually, that's that's one of the ways that I, that I really dislike reading the Lord of the Rings (laughs) is that I often feel like you could have written this a little more interwoven. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess I could say the same thing about the Old Testament. It's like it's not interwoven storytelling. Right. Well, it um, wasn't written that way. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. They're all... So the, the difference between the Yahwist and the Eloist are who's writing from the north and the south. Hmm. Uh, and then the priestly writers are post-exilic. Um, so yeah, they're they're... There are reasons for the differences. Right, right. It would be interesting to like have a Bible that put them all like in a chronological order um, to where while you're reading Chronicles or while you're reading Kings, you have like as on a bottom part of the, like you split the book in half mm. or the page in half, like the bottom half of the page is the prophetic words spoken by a prophet in yeah. that time um, or something. That would be and interesting. It, yeah, it just kind of feels a little bit like when I do read The Lord of the Rings, anytime he gets to a poem or anytime he gets to a song, I just skip it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, I used to do that. It's like a different kind of storytelling that I'm yeah. not interested in because I'm in a narrative mode. Right, right. Um, so yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's uh, so like when I when I made my way through the Stargate catalog, I'm nerding out right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a point where... Um, SG-1 doesn't end, but Atlantis picks up. Okay. I'm going to pretend to know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so you wa- you're watching... So you've spent like five seasons or whatever watching just one show. Mm-hmm. And then a new show starts that's connected to the other show. And so now you're watching them chronologically, which means an episode of SG-1. I think Star Trek did this for a little while with Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. Anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> you've lost all two of our yeah, that's right that's right, right sorry anyway chronological is an interesting way it gets super complicated because there are lots of repetitions mm. so it get very convoluted very quickly but it's a cool idea and actually i think yeah. there is i've seen recently somebody has put together a bible that focuses on that overarching narrative of salvation history yeah, man, that's the way to do it. Which is kind of neat. It's a little, I was a little like upset when I saw that because <laughs> I was like, that's literally how I teach my class. Mm. Uh, and now all of a sudden there's this Bible that's doing the same thing. Come on. Yeah. That's good. That's oh, it really is wonderful. Good. It's wonderful. Yeah. I just, I don't understand teaching the Old Testament any other way. Like, it, how is it possible that you can help someone get this, a sense of the whole? Like, I'm yeah. just a big fan of getting a sense of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, well, and that's how I mean when I taught the sacraments, I felt the same way. It's like how, and maybe this is just a good, this is just a good pedagogical principle. Mm-hmm. Is what's the big picture, you right. know? And 
what's at stake here ultimately? And having that question in the back of my mind is always really important. Is like, what's at stake when I say X about Y? The reason this matters is because look right. at the whole picture, right. you know? Yeah. And if you detract on this point, then the whole picture breaks apart. Right. And that's the fun part. So that's the big di- difference, I think, between getting lost in the weeds and getting and jumping in to the specifics of this particular story. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I think too often, especially when people try to like start reading the Bible and just they want to do it cover to cover. Like you quickly just get lost in the weeds because nothing is making sense. Right. Um, but when you have this understanding of the general narrative of what's going on, then you can go back and say, oh, well, when the prophets talk about Ephraim, I already know that they're referring to Israel. And so I don't have to worry about making these distinctions clear in my mind. I can just run with it. Yeah. Or just figure out, like, why the heck are they doing that all of a sudden? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another <laughs> a, par- a parallel example would be with uh, so with the the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh huh. Oh so yeah. You, so you have you know the magician's nephew begins this epic tale of the creation of this world, where the main storyline picks up with the line the witch in the wardrobe, where you have these three kids that become the kings and queens of Narnia, or these right. what is it four four kids? Yeah, four kids. Four kids. Which is epic, and it's a really cool story. But then all of a sudden, after the line the witch in the wardrobe, you have the horse and his boy. And it's like... Right. which takes place before the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe end. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, because the horse, the boy, goes and meets King Edmund or, or somebody. Oh, okay, yeah. There's still kings and queens of Narnia while that story's going on. Right. It's like, wait a minute. If you just read Horse, horse and His Boy, it stands alone as its own book. Right. But it fits within this broader na- narrative right. that if you get the big picture, because they even reference, you know, the kings and queens, but... How, who are those kings and queens? We don't really even know anything about right. them unless you've read everything else. Right. No, that's cool. So you think that your education has given you a better appreciation of how to teach the prophets and yeah. maybe just deepening your appreciation for the Old Testament? Yeah. So I think it's it's helped shape, um, kind of broaden that that narrative so that I, I would feel more com- comfortable interjecting to the story and kind of giving a little footnote to and this prophet while this was happening is saying this Hmm. nice very cool what about you very yeah i think uh so i taught sacraments and morality and i don't think that i would teach it any differently i don't think um but i feel like i have a better sense of what like other ways of approaching these topics is and i have better reasons to defend the way that i do it right yeah (laughs) um i know that Maybe sounds a little bit uh, <laughs> arrogant, but like, I I don't know. I'm in this this class right now that some of the topics that we're covering are things that I had talked about with my kids. And it's one of the struggles of being a teacher and then being a student again is that it's like, ah, this is not how I would do it. Right, uh, and right. it's, it's really difficult. And so it's just kind of giving me an appreciation of like, okay, I think I have a wider understanding of the, the general conversation. So like, when I taught sacraments, I knew a way of teaching it. I didn't really know any other way. Now I know other ways of teaching it, but I still think my way is good. Right. And I, right. I probably think that I would still use it. Um, I will say, I feel like I have learned a lot about the scriptures that I didn't know. Um, I took a class on the Synoptic Gospels and just going deep dive into the Synoptics was epic, um, which I didn't have any mastery of whatsoever. Um Church history is also an area that I didn't know really anything about. 
Oh yeah, um, didn't you buy try to get like some history books? Did oh you, yeah, did you ever I've been, do that? Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. So and by books, what I what I consider to be history books. So I took a medieval history class last semester, and um, that was helpful. But then what I decided to do after the fact was to download some audiobooks on the Middle Ages. Uh-huh. Um, and the Great Courses series has some really good ones on the early Middle Ages and then the high Middle Ages. Um, so that's been really great to like get someone's bird's eye perspective on the whole Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, I spoke with one of my professors who is a historian and I asked him, you know, if you were teaching a class on the Middle Ages, because it's the Middle Ages in particular that I find myself not knowing anything about. Um, I asked him, if you were to teach this class, what would you assign as a reading? And he mentioned a few like textbooky type history books. But then he said, actually, there's this novel that I would assign hmm. to give the students a perspective. And it's set in the Middle Ages to give the students a perspective on what's going on uh-huh. in the Middle Ages. The um, name of the day to day. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Like day to day living of what's life like really um, in the Middle Ages. And so I've been reading it and or as an audiobook, And it's so good. Hmm. But it is. It's gruesome too. Like I can't recommend it to kids. Like there's some really adu- there's like adult content there, uh-huh, and it's uh-huh. it's a difficult read sometimes. But I find that it's really helpful to get a sense of like, huh, the Middle Ages wasn't just a bunch of backwards, you know, ignorant, uh, dark age type stuff. It's like no, there's intrigue and there's right. um, mastery of craft and there's science and there's politics and economics and you know there's life and thriving and yeah, and it's it's set in the 12th century, um, yeah. and so it just kind of gives me a not a bird's eye view, but just a deep dive into like what was day to day living like in the Middle Ages. Yeah, it's a really unfortunate stereotype that everything before the Enlightenment was dark. I mean, the Dark Ages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it plays out in my education. I think yours too. Is that in my history class in high school and elementary school? I mean, it's anything before the Second World War, and I'm like uh, Civil War. Um, <laughs> I don't know the founding fathers, uh, <laughs> the um, Columbus, yeah. and the ancient Egyptians, the, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and the ancient Egyptians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like that's all I got. You know, yeah. You know, I I have the Fertile Crescent in my mind, <laughs> and then I have 1492, <laughs> and then the Articles of Confederation, and yeah, and yeah JFK's assassination, JFK's assassination, and the Civil Rights Movement, yeah. Um, that's funny. I do. Re- I do recommend this book to you, though. What's it I, called? It's called Pillars of the Earth, mm. and it has a bit of a Game of Thrones type feel to it. Ooh, um, like but that. it's it's not it's not in the sense of like, I've never actually seen or read Game of Thrones, so I I can't really say. But it's not. There's not a lot of battling. It's just a lot of like characters and character development, which is probably why I really like it. Is that yeah. I love books that are about characters, yeah. um, which is why Lord of the Rings is painful for me to read because <laughs> he doesn't really seem to care about his characters what? much. What? He doesn't. He's like, for 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 Tolkien, it's not about the characters. It's about the ensemble <laughs> and it's about the experience of the ensemble and the effect that it has on the individuals. Mm. But you don't really do like a deep dive into one character and follow one character for a very long time. Mm. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, like... Mm. I would argue. I could argue with that, but I won't. That would. Why not? Well, argue with me. <laughs> uh, so I mean, you're you're right in a sense. Like he's not he's not exploring Aragorn as uh, 
as a ranger in the in the third age who is on a destined to become king he's 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 focusing on archetypes and so how and not just like archety- and not just an archetype as like an allegory like aragorn does not is not just the king mm-hmm. uh, like he's playing with how how these things change in our lives and in our and in our, our our understandings of who we are, mm-hmm. and you're right, it is it, it is a communal thing. We learn that through interacting with each other, and I think that's yeah. very true. And so it's in that sense, he is writing uh, a book, a story about humanity mm. instead of particular characters. Yeah, and I guess that's that's one of the reasons that it's hard for me to read is that he he would much rather focus on plot, and I think on you know the world building of middle earth and yeah, then but not just the plot like i think that's the point though is he's looking at motivation why do people do the things that they do and what type of a person does the things that he's exploring hmm. so like yeah. he'll he'll have many characters who are very similar types of characters with vastly different experiences vastly different um so a great example is the difference between Gandalf and Saruman and Sauron. Like these are three very distinct characters, but they're the same type of a character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what are the choices that led them to become who they eventually became? Yeah. 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 I, I And I appreciate that. And I do like the Lord of the Rings. Don't get me wrong. I just, <laughs> I, I, I like books more when I get, you know, I get six chapters on Gandalf and I get to follow Gandalf from Gandalf's perspective and get his backstory and know his, what makes him tick and see his perspective on the fellowship. And yeah. like in most, in most of the book, Gandalf doesn't really say much. He doesn't really do anything. Um, no, I mean, he does a lot. <laughs> I know, but and like considering not, how, yeah, it how long to, the trilogy is, you know? Right, right. And it's not an active activity, if you will. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It's yeah. more of a passive activity. Mm-hmm. No, it really is. <laughs> so like this other book that I'm talking about, Pillars, it's really it's really focused on particular characters. So there's a handful of characters that you follow over the course of 20 years. Um and you see them, and you know, and so like the plot is to facilitate growth in your characters, the set is to facilitate the plot, and and that's basically it. And you just follow these people to see how they grow over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, and granted, you get that in The Lord of the Rings because like Frodo Fair at the Man beginning. Eowyn. Yeah, or or Frodo. I mean, Frodo and, and the other three hobbits, you see them at the end of the story and they're not the same, right? They're not the same that they were at the beginning. That's fair. Um, there is character development, but it's just not focused. Huh? Nobody is. Nobody's the same. That's right. But the the book is not focused on character development per se. I think it's, <laughs> it's, more, it's more complicated than well, that. Yeah, you know? the character development is a... Mm, do I want to say that? Is it a tool? I just think he's a really good writer. I mean, yeah. I think that he he knows yeah. how to integrate plot with setting, with character development yeah. and everything. Yeah. But I'm, all I'm saying is that it's hard for me to read because there's not a lot of like oh, yeah. listen, listening to Gandalf talk about Gandalf and Gandalf's perspective. It's Gandalf says a word and then we start talking about the genus of this oak tree that, <laughs> you know, and it's like, I don't want to, yeah. I don't care about well, that. Right I mean, now. and that's the, f- so actually this goes back to what we were talking about. Like, this is this is the fascinating thing about the Lord of the Rings in particular is that once you've got the narrative 
and you know kind of what's going on, who's who and what's what, then you can take a fascinating offhanded remark, like the fact that Gandalf told Faramir his real name, his Maiar name. What's his Maiar name? Olorin. Mm. Uh, and you really get to to sit there and contemplate what that means. Like what that says about Gandalf and what that says about Faramir. And so it is mm-hmm. character driven, but it's not ex mm, ooh, ooh. So it's not explicitly character driven. Tolkien allows you to explore that and to discover that. As the reader you as the reader. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. That's good. Um anyway. I think you should read this other book though. I think yeah. this other book is is worth reading. Yeah. It's like nine hundred pages though. Put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a nine hundred page fiction work. <laughs> Yeah, and no. it's totally good. I mean, it's it's historical fiction, so it's set in a like in an actual time in the history of England and in fictional towns, but and fictional people. But you get an actual perspective on what life right. was like for a middle a, a medieval priory and a medieval you know uh, you know earl and a medieval like carpenter. Yeah, and what's no, life that'd be like cool um, before bedtime reading just to take my time with it. I'll tell you, man, I've been listening to it as an audiobook and it's really, really well, it's really well read. And I pref- much prefer it to probably reading it hardback because the guy makes wonderful voices to, you know, designate the characters and it just kind of feels like story time. Yeah. It's an option as well. How long do you think it takes to perform a 900 page book? 900 page book? Um, I would say five hours. <laughs> it is a 40 hour book four zero? <laughs> oh my god <laughs> wow yeah yeah it's 40 hours how is that possible <laughs> no but like, it is. the silmarillion is like an eight hour book and that's a big book is it 900 maybe, maybe pages it's, maybe it's not as big as i think it is <laughs> silmarillion is probably like 200 to 300 pages. <laughs> 900 pages is 40 hours? Yeah. Yeah. And I've actually chosen to read this one on 1X and not on 2X. <laughs> Ooh, so you're doing the full 40. <laughs> I'm doing the full 40. Well, it's 40 days. That's right. Length. There Might it is. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to an hour a day. Yeah. I. Uh, so I've been considering reading the Dune books. I don't know what that is. Uh, so these, it's science fiction. There's many, many movies and video games based off of the Dune series. House Harkonnen, Atreides. I got nothing. You know nothing about this? No idea. Harvest the I, Spice? I saw, I saw a lot of stuff on Twitter about a new movie coming out about Dune. Yeah. And I have no idea what that is, though. But and they've, like, recruited long. some people to be in it. Yeah, it's a long series. Kind of what you're talking about. It's a very... It's very much a like a political drama, like a Game of Thrones type of thing, but mm-hmm. set in space. <laughs> uh, Game of Thrones set in space. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's like I have this. I have this problem. We've talked about this with like things like um, Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Like the thought of getting into Green Lantern is just daunting because there's so much and so complicated. So many different Green Lanterns. I have the same feeling towards the series. Like it's such a big deal and such a complicated mm-hmm. deal that I don't really like, I fear jumping in. 
Yeah. Uh, but I really want to do it. So yeah, you should do it. How many, uh, how many volumes is it? I don't know. A lot. Are these books or are these comic books? Books. Books. Mm. Book, book. You know, I think as we're talking about this, I think one thing that we could add uh, in the future is just a simple question, which is what are you reading right now? Mm. Because it seems like the older you and I both get, we end up reading more and more, which I think is a really good feature of our life is that we're not reading less, which yeah. I feel like I spent the vast majority of my adolescence and young adulthood not reading. Um, <laughs> yep, same. Uh, I feel like I feel like I'm making up for lost time now, which is. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's not a bad thing. Like you said, this is a sign. I think a sign of adulting, growing up. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so I, I remember there was a, an episode of Bishop Barron's podcast that I found uh, just kind of silly and funny that he was talking about like the urgency of needing to read as much as possible, mm. um, which I appreciate. But he was even putting it from the perspective of like, yeah, you only have you know 70 years and 80 for those who are strong and <laughs> in that time you can maybe read like you know half a dozen books a year or something or a dozen books a year or depending on how fast you read or something yeah and it's like that's not that many books in a lifetime right. it's like and there's a like there's so many books to read right um and i just never really understood that from the inside i get it from the outside but i've never been bitten by that bug right. uh to be like a voracious reader i'm yeah. kind of feeling it more and more but I'm yeah, not I mean, quite there yet. that's why I know a couple of people that have made it a point to read like the classics, like to go back and find, you know, the top 40 books that every person needs to read, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Um, that's like, I like the idea of that more than actually doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you, man. And here's, I've made this mistake before. Um, I, I appreciate that. And I think that eventually I should read those books. Yeah. But I feel like when I feel like when I feel a desire to read more, I think I should start with the greats. Let me pick up the Odyssey. And then I read like page one and I'm like, this sucks. Like this, (laughs) this is really boring and I don't know what I'm reading. And I kind of feel like I need to spend time reading other things to really develop the habit of reading and the skill of reading so that I can. Right. Well, I mean, again, to plug some Tolkien, this is, he's the reason why I picked up Beowulf. Like, for some reason, I may be one of the only people that made it out of high school without having to read Beowulf. One of two people. You didn't either? <laughs> nope. Nice. Uh, hey, you got to keep in mind, uh, having Pub- read or supposed <laughs> well, to have read. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> I certainly didn't read it. I may have had to have read it. I don't remember. I don't think so. Yeah. But, uh. Now just reading more about him and the things that he like he taught he taught Beowulf every year. Hmm. Like this was a intro class. And you're having one of the most brilliant professors of all time teach you uh you know, the the equivalent of intro to ethics. Wait a minute. So you're are you reading Beowulf? I already did. I did this a while ago. He has his own translation. Yeah, I remember that. You bought it? Yeah. And like and you read it? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And he's Does got some like articles. His notes? He's got this. Um, he's got this article called "Monsters and Critics," where people are criticizing Beowulf, and he's like, "Well, no, this is actually really an important hmm. thing." Uh, is his translation readable? Yeah, it's good. It's really good. And there's like footnotes and stuff that he wrote. Hmm. Hmm. I'm yeah. about to pick that up next. Yeah, I find myself a hard copy. Oh yeah, there. You recommend it? Oh yeah. Um, but anyway, mm, like anyway, like that 
I like how that can be my intro introduction into something like Beowulf. And then there's this really great BBC podcast um, called, I think it's In Our Time or In Our Day or something like that. And there was a episode on Beowulf. And the guy who holds Tolkien's, basically his job, Anglo-Saxon professor, uh, Professor Andy Orchard, who came and talked at this thing that I went to last year in San Francisco, is there talking about Beowulf. Uh, wow. And so the fact that I now have this desire to listen to somebody, some professor uh, lecture on Beowulf because I really like Tolkien, I think that's kind of cool. Like, yeah. This can open yeah, doors yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think that's what ends up happening. More doors open more quickly um, over time. Like the So you read... You read The Lord of the Rings and fell in love with that, and that opened up you up to Middle Earth. Okay. But then through that, you went left Middle Earth, and because of your connection with Tolkien, you read Beowulf. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're reading, you know, English literature from the Middle Ages, right. generally. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you find yourself reading the Arthurian legends. Yeah. And then from there, you're like, wait a minute, I like epic lyrical things anyway, so I should probably read Homer. And now all of a yeah. sudden, you're reading Homer. Right, right. Um, and things just open up that way if you keep following down this rabbit hole. Yeah, cool. Very good. Um, so do we want to do any um any more talk on our book? Dude, I don't know if we have time. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, let's just save it for next week. That way, it'll, it'll give us a time to finish reading. Yeah. I, I know we both didn't get a chance to finish everything. Right. Um, well, maybe we could get into some follow up. Oh, do you have a desire sure. to do that? Do we have time to do that? To what we talked about yeah. last week? Yeah, With sure. Those first what did you three, first three points? Oh, from okay, so from coddling. Um, yeah. well, the only reason that I think that it might not be enough time is that I wanted to ask you a question based on your experience. Yeah. Um, because the second chapter, the second part of the book, uh, chronicles this whole thing about uh, language is not violence, or violence and language are not the same thing. Yeah. Um. And the first example he gives is the riots at UC Berkeley in 2017. <laughs> yeah. I was, where here, you I was were, here for that. Yeah. And so I wanted to kind of get your perspective on it. But I don't think you've read that part yet um, to see what he says about it and you right. based on your experience. Right. Um, and it, it just it, the whole section has to do with, you know, when when freedom of speech gives people license to Become silence violent. other people yeah. <laughs> and to, well, and to silence others. Right. Um, you know, it's like when hate speech becomes something that you use as a buzzword to keep others from speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and there was just this ironic piece that he was pointing out that it was at UC Berkeley that the whole freedom of speech movement really took yeah. off in the 1960s. And all of a sudden it's at UC Berkeley that you see this freedom of speech yeah, well, being silenced, you know? Before part two, he, he, he had that example of, or they had that example of uh, the, the free speech protest maybe i did read this the free speech protest um with the counter protesters and they gave the counter protesters a platform to, to speak oh did they yeah huh and that's just not something that happens often like no we're here i mean promoting free speech so why do you think we don't have the right to speak let's talk about right. it right yeah but what what the guy was putting on the book that is typically happening in our universities is that you you let's say it's typically on the right. So let's say Jonathan, you hold a very extreme right position that 
people do not like. Right. And then I say, I don't like it. So I protest and try to keep you from speaking. And then I turn violent to keep anyone from going to right. your talk. Right. Um, and so it's especially keeping people who are arch conservatives from giving public lectures because mm -hmm. of fear, mm -hmm. because of this, this belief that these views are dangerous views. Yeah. The lead um, to fascist oppression. Or that they are fascist somehow. Yeah, um, yeah, that's an interesting. It is. It's all very interesting just because like there are legitimate things that we would call hate speech mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the kinds of propaganda that we probably wouldn't want in the public forum. Right. And it's it just introduces a broader question about like what is what is freedom of speech? What does it actually protect? Right. Do we have a right to say whatever we want whenever we want? Um, in other words, like maybe from the perspective of the people that are on the violent left, Maybe the, like, how can we defend their anger for a second and say, like, is yeah. there a way of saying that you can't say whatever you want all the time? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I'm thinking my immediate reaction is to think about the, the way that we as modern readers and learners talk about the ancient heresies mm -hmm. as these, you know, these jerks that are just out there to screw up orthodoxy. Like we demonize um, Marcion and Arius. Arius, Arius, and all these people. Mm -hmm. When in reality, they're trying. <laughs> I want to say I wanted I wanted to say the Donatist, but I couldn't remember the name of the guy, so I wanted to say Donatello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it was Donatist. Yeah, we demonize that guys. Anyway, Donatist, yeah, yeah. I, uh, they're they're trying to make sense of of this incredible mystery mm -hmm. of Christ. And they're trying. They're screwing up. And sometimes they're not willing to admit when they're wrong, but they're trying to figure it out. And that's something to be commended. Right, right. Uh, and so I wonder if there's a if there's a corollary here with the people that are um, becoming more and more violent. They're like there's a there's something good there that they're passionate about, that they want to preserve. Um, Oh, they want to preserve dignity, mm -hmm. but it gets twisted. It becomes yeah. oh, absolutely. It becomes bent, as Lewis would say, uh, that these things aren't just evil in and of themselves, but they're bent goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. So you reminded me actually one one other piece of follow up from last week that I forgot to say last week, and I had forgotten about it until you just said ancient heresies. Um, so last week we were talking about the what was it the the anti fragile, yeah, uh, thing. So like you know the the human body is anti fragile that it needs to be pushed and pulled and right. given given some sort of like uh, what is it like you know, butting up against it you know to yeah to well, give it yeah. to give our it vaccines are give it we're injecting dead viruses into our body so that we can build up an immunity to it yeah and strength you know strength comes through tearing down sometimes. Um, it got me thinking a little bit about like I mentioned this last week of my own experience of like having fear of being taught incorrect things or fear of being corrupted by someone who might not have my best interest at heart or especially when it comes to people who are more intelligent than I or in a position of power. Um, and I, ha I carried some of that fear for a long time and I don't have it as much now. Uh -huh. um, but I, got, I forgot about this. There's, there's a really good example from Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, St. Irenaeus was famous for his, uh, teaching against the Gnostics, you know, this, this ancient heresy that in a lot of ways still very much exists. Yeah. Um, 
And one of the things that he says in his famous book, Against the Heretics, it's called Against Heresy. Um, he says he was defending why he studied the Gnostics. Mm. Because people were like, why are you bothering studying these people? They're clearly insane. And he said, a doctor has to become familiar with a disease in order for yeah. him to cure it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Dude, that's like sixth century church father. Yeah. Like that's, or maybe even earlier, you know, like I yep. can't remember when he was, maybe earlier. Um, and it just got me thinking whenever I, I, when I read that like six years ago, it got me thinking and I it stayed with me ever since is that what fear, like, why would I be afraid of learning things that are quote unquote wrong or quote unquote, you know, unorthodox or something? It's like, you know, a doctor is not afraid of his, of the cancer in the patient. Right. If he was afraid of the cancer in the patient, then he's a bad doctor. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good analogy. And, you know, it's like, and it's the difference between the way that, you know, so the church for a long time had the index of heretical works that were not, were forbidden works, works that were mm -hmm. not allowed to be published or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and the faithful were basically forbidden from reading them for fear of corruption. Mm -hmm. But, one of the cool things about the Jesuits were that we were given special permission to read those hmm. so that we could fight them so that hmm. we could know them. So I wonder if there's, cause I do think there's a danger in being, um, in being shown dangerous ideas when they're being taught as this is how you should think. Or, I, I have to think about that some more. Right. Like how how are like, we approaching information with a critical eye in order to become better versions of ourselves versus how are well, how I'll, are we being spoon-fed information? Yeah. Well, I'll I'll give you the example of one of my professors who I highly highly respect. Um and he was interviewed recently and this is a very brilliant philosopher of uh I'm not exactly sure how to describe what he is, but he's a philosopher and he's a theologian kind of and it's it's weird, but he's very well versed in in the Middle Ages, and he knows a lot about a lot of things. Um, and he was doing this podcast, uh, being interviewed by some students, and they were picking up on the fact that he's very well read, and he's also just very kind. And they asked him, is there anybody that you would say got it wrong, or that you would disagree with? And he said, I'm not going to answer that, because all of these people are way smarter than I am. <laughs> so, so it's like, and also, frankly, I have a lot to learn from even the people who say things that are not right, you know, but I'm not going to go so far as to set myself up against them. Right. Um, in other words, like he, he just sees, he's not a relativist and he's not just this, uh, you know, this ambiguous, afraid of making truth claims. No, he does, but he wants to learn from even the people who everyone says, right. oh no, don't, don't read Nietzsche or don't read uh hegel uh, he's like no these people have a lot to teach me right um yeah it's it's a very i think it's a very christian way of seeing like read everything yeah well you know? that's how you that's how we learn right just like our bodies need to be pushed our minds do as well yeah yeah and i think i had the fear of pushing my mind you know for fear of it breaking but it's like that's the opposite of what like when you push your mind your mind grows you know and it and it gets stronger right Good, good, good. Well, okay. So the rest of the follow-up for this, I want you to read that part on about Berkeley because I want to talk to you next week about yeah, definitely, what, your definitely. what your experience actually was on campus when that happened. Mm -hmm. Cool.
Yeah, we'll do cool, that. Cool, man. All right. We'll do it. All right, See dude. You later. Peace.